Episode 42 of the Champagne Comedy Podcast, where we talk about the best Australian comedy show from the 90s ever made, Frontline, and other degeneration comedy tidbits. Joining us on this podcast today is Alison, Daniel, Kim, Prue, and Tony. We have an absolute full house, and I don't think we've actually done this before where the entire team has been together in the one episode. Not for a while. It's been a while. Mm. Yeah, so welcome aboard, everyone. Hooray. How are we all feeling? <laughs> really great. Excellent. <laughs> all right. We're all in. Throw a pile of one. Yeah. <laughs> all right, we'll go straight into it. And we have our first feedback from our Frontline podcast, which, uh, yeah, the, which, which is great. So... It's one, 100% up from last time. So uh, this is an email from Cameron Davis, and he says, Hello, Champagne Comedy Podcast team. Just want to say how glad I was to hear the first episode covering Frontline. I am low-key obsessed with the show, and I can't wait to hear what you all think about the future episodes. Anyway, the reason I write this is I wanted to add a bit of pedantry piece to, of trivia to the first episode. Now, what he's referring to is something that we actually didn't play a grab of, but I'm going to include it in this story, okay? The Game Boy game that Mike was playing was Super Mario Land, and you can tell because they used the background music for the game. So here's the bit directly from the episode. Is Mike in? I think he's really busy. Come! <laughs> the TV whips here, Mike. Oh, right. I'm a bit busy. Oh, no, just wake it down here. I'll have a look at it later. Thanks. Can, can you hear something? Nope. So that's very subtle, very quiet. So that was Super Mario Land, which sounds like this. Ah. True nerdy style. Love it. And so he says it's not just random beeps and boops that most TV shows add whenever someone is playing a video game. I really appreciated the attention to detail the production team showed there. And he also looks forward to more episodes of Frontline that we tend to dissect and destroy and kill jokes and stuff like that. So, <laughs> hooray! So thank you very much for that, Cameron. Uh, it's, 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 it's great to know that uh, uh, there's an intersection between video game fans and uh, Frontline fans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Definite attention to detail. Also, uh, one for you, Alison, and that was Andy Munro, who has written this on the Champagne Comedy Podcast Facebook forum group thing that we do have. Uh, feel free to join. Andy actually said that he only learnt that Jeffrey Salter was from Mount Gambia because of the podcast. So thanks, that, Andy. We're very informative. Well, I'm happy to read out extracts from Frontline, the story behind the story behind the stories, anytime. <laughs> Doing a special on Salter's examination of the Blue Lakes of Mount Gambia soon. Yeah, I... I, I think we really miss an opportunity to see him present the weather from one of those sinkholes. Yes. I used to, well, I do have relatives who live in the neighbourhood and we used to spend, when I was a child, a fair bit of time at Mount Gambia. And that's all I remember. The Blue Lake was very impressive as a giant sinkhole. 
<laughs> that's about it. Sorry, Mount Gambier. There's a good pub there. Last time I went there, the pub was nice. Oh, that's good. So plenty to do in Mount Gambier. It's time for... Oh, Jesus! <laughs> Daniel Chaney's program guide. And I bet that's what everybody cries out when my segment comes on as well. Well, that grave is Mike Moore going through the TV week. I've got the paper has been officially retired yeah. <laughs> to now have blasphemy instead. <laughs> All right, so technically this is a program guide, but uh, I'm not focusing too much on uh, on what's uh, on the TV uh, on uh, the 16th of May. The only thing that's worthy of a mention really is that later on the ABC at 9.30 is the final in the season of this Sporting Life with H.G. Nelson and rampaging Roy Slavin. And they have as their special guest Barry Humphreys as himself, which I don't know whether that's a rarity or not. That it, I, I, I can kind of remember that episode, yeah. It's, they had, it. They well, had he, guests, He does they? turn up. Yeah, he does turn up as himself. I'm more interested in the fact that he's on a sports program because he's notoriously <laughs> really hates sport and he's got like awards from the anti-football society and stuff like that so um <laughs> i i really don't know what he would have had to say about sport maybe he didn't probably talk exactly about sport that yeah he didn't talk about they it. probably probably talked about his award from the anti-football league but yeah <laughs> well uh, the, the, the good news is that it is on youtube yeah so i'll, pa- oh. I'll pass the links on to matt and uh he can uh, uh stick it through the socials i will be watching that <laughs> What I want to focus on uh, instead is some of the reviews for the first episode because we um, we didn't have much time to uh, really go through those in the last episode. So starting off with um, a bit from Tony Squires uh, writing in the Sydney Morning Herald Guide. What Frontline does so wonderfully is offer us regular laughs by pr- uh, clever scripting and occasionally broad stroke performance while daring to say something. Not only that, it is a specific comment about the TV industry. Much Australian product, whether it be comedy or drama, sets itself in a vacuum. It seems to be afraid of offending real people and even real locations. Not frontline. Its references are people we know, places we know, and current stories we know, and it bites at all of them. He also praises uh, John Hewson's performance as being simply brilliant, not just politically. The fear of having the likes of Sitch and Jane Kennedy who plays a reporter acting in something that is much more than an extended late show sketch was that they may have been of Paradise Beach standard. Oh. But in the context <laughs> of this show, uh, they are perfect. They're also surrounded by fine performers such as the wonderful Bruno Lawrence, who plays the program's executive producer. It's a winning combination. So some nice uh, praise mm. there from Tony. There was also a review uh, in The Age on the morning of the uh, broadcast written by Philippa Hawker. She writes that Frontline is very funny, assured and entertaining. It's miles better than the vastly overrated British show Drop the Dead Donkey and more inventive and interesting to look at than Murphy Brown. It has some sharp points to make, but I'm not sure whether it's as radical a demystification as its creators would like to think. The Frontline team should bear in mind that there's other satirical ground which hasn't been covered in detail. A behind-the-scenes look at the making of a comedy show Now, that would be something. Punchline, a no-holds-barred look at the cynical, manipulative world of TV comedy. In the words of the AFL promo, I'd like to see that. Somehow I think she's she's foretelling uh, the invention of the jesters. 
<laughs> Remember that that show was on Foxtel. Yeah, vaguely, vaguely. I remember it well. I enjoyed it a lot. It was like the chaser, but Mick Malloy was their manager sort of thing. Yeah, it was It was basically yeah, behind the scenes of a chaser-style kind of a prank yeah. show, let's call it. It definitely wasn't as sharp as Frontline, though. It, 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 I mean, Frontline's a really sharp program, and I, I disagree with that review, by the way, because, you know, I th- I thought it was uh, someone who was quite young at the time. It told me an awful lot about the world of current affairs. Mm. But I mean, getting back to the jesters, the jesters wasn't particularly sharp. It had a lot of kind of dumb jokes, really, that that were not as satirical as Frontline. So, yeah. Philippa references an interview that Tom Glasner did with the Green Guide, saying that he wasn't keen to attract a teenage audience and would feel that the show had failed if it did. Philippa reckons that uh, this view is misguided for several reasons. It's unnecessarily arrogant and it underestimates the abilities of a sceptical and visually literate age group. It's more like the good old days when any show could pretend that they weren't desperate for teenage viewers. I mean, these days it'd be ridiculous for anyone to say they didn't want teenagers because it's impossible to get teenagers' attention. Surely what Tom is saying there is that he doesn't want exclusively teenagers. He wants a broad range of people watching the show. And and if that was the aim, then he certainly got it because, as I said last episode, you know, my parents watched it, the teachers at school watched it, and me and my friends watched it. So, you know, it got a huge age range of people watching the show, whereas The Late Show, I think really did have that much younger audience and older people were turned off by it. It would be interesting to know the context of the question that Tom was asked for him to give that answer. Like was he perhaps Mm. led a little bit? Like was there some reference to the high popularity of The Late Show and it having a lot of young fans? You know, when he's trying to clearly do a different thing. Um, A lot of of the time with these interviews, the answer they give is not like – a real answer it's the answer they give to try and define the conversation around their show so it, they're probably not sitting there going damn those teens How can we <laughs> i wish they <laughs> stopped buying our merch at the abc yeah. shop stop watching our clothes, <laughs> stupid young people it's more that they want to say this show is for adults and not even for adults but it's just aimed at a different audience than what people expect from the degeneration but i'm pretty sure i know what you're all thinking W-D-W-T, what did Warnicky think? <laughs> <laughs> so he, uh, he starts off, uh, his, he spends half of his uh, weekly rewind, rewind column in the uh, Green Guide uh, talking about the show, and he starts off um, essentially in character. Hello, I'm Mike Moore. Welcome to the show. Tonight we look at Frontline, the ABC's new comedy from some of the team responsible for the late, great, late show. It began this week in a blaze of publicity. The ABC even gave it its hallowed 8pm Monday comedy time slot. But is Frontline a dud? That's the question many are asking after the first episode. Some say it was not very funny at all. Others contend that any comedy show in which the opposition leader, Dr Hewson, can get the biggest laugh and a tired old English comedian gets the second biggest with, you guessed it, a mother-in-law joke, is really in trouble. It might be said that it's just finding its feet. We'll take your views later, but first. Ooh, this hokey setup of being the ugh. 
When he yeah. says uh, some say it's not very funny at all, um, exactly who? <laughs> <laughs> Have you sp- spoken to these yeah. people? Can you name them? <laughs> well, you'll, yeah. see, you'll, 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 see, you'll see that he's picked up the lesson there in a little intro. <laughs> like, who, yeah. who has said this and yeah. give exactly. me the names? And why and where and how? Yes. Yeah, g- give me all the names so I can send the police around. <laughs> Yeah, but also, hang on, hang on. He started out hating the Late Show, and now he's saying the Late yeah. Lem- Great. Oh, late, I mean, of course, yeah. okay. I think, I, think he, I think he eventually turned around. Is the diplomatic way to put it. This is how critics work. <laughs> Early on, and with these sort of shows, it's safe to be a hater. Once it becomes popular, if you don't get on the train, you're out of touch. So while Warnicky can go, oh, look, it's not to my taste early on when no one's watching The Late Show, by the end, if he's still hating it, he just looks like some drip who doesn't know what's going on. And his editors are going to say, why do we have a TV critic who is out of touch with public views? So, yeah, you see it, you see it quite often that critics will turn around and sort of try and whitewash the past and go and say, oh, no, I was always a fan of this incredibly popular thing despite being firmly against it, you know, the first four movies in the series, now I'm on board. Vin Diesel, the greatest actor of our generation. So. You, you'll be pleased to know that uh, Warnicky uh, spends the rest of the review writing as himself. So I'll, oh, I'll, I'll continue. Mike Moore, host of Frontline, talks like that. Nothing too definitive and lots of references to what other people, all unidentified, might be saying to avoid having to tell us what he thinks. As a parody of some TV current affairs show hosts, he is spot on, a good-looking airhead saying nothing that might cause offence. But that is easy, too easy, and it has been done before. The talking heads of current affairs TV are sitting ducks. What is needed if Frontline is to keep us laughing and cringing is a brutal dissection of the way current affairs manufactures news and views. It needs to deride the miracle cancer cure and two-headed baby syndrome that has taken hold of a current affair in real life. The tendency to create populist issues from nothing and then forget them just as quickly. The willingness to inflict upon us any visiting has-beens who wants uh, publicity for a new film, record or book. It is not expecting too much. Frontline obviously wants to be more satire than sitcom, but with a lot of banter within Frontline's Murphy Brown lookalike production office, none of which rose far above a few jokes about more, played by Rob Sitch, being a pretty face with an ego ten times bigger than his intellect, and a couple of out-of-studio segments that looked like skits left over from The Late Show, the child prodigy sketch and the ugly Dave Gray sit-down joke routine, the first episode was more sitcom than satire, more gags than sharp-edged commentary on the media. The notable exception came when Sitch's character went into interview mode and quizzed the real-life Dr. Hewson about his failing popularity. The opposition leader delivered his scripted punchline, pointing out that Moore's show, i.e. Stan Grant's, Ray Martin's or Paul Lynham's show, got even lower ratings. If he should be dumped, so should they, so back in your box. But otherwise, the first episode of Frontline was disappointing. It was not a patch on the British media satire Drop the Dead Donkey (laughs) on SBS. True, Frontline does not try to be as zany, which might be a mistake, but Drop the Dead Donkey's appeal owed as much to its topicality as to its newsroom buffoonery. Recently, there have been numerous stories that Frontline could have used to parody TV news and current affairs. 
It does not take much imagination, for example, to see how the tasteless media rush to reenact the flogging in Singapore of American teenager Michael Fay or the multi-million dollar offers to pictures of his bloodied rear could have been satirised, or the naked Elle McPherson-led recovery of the Australian film industry, or Roseanne's divorce come publicity stunt. The only topical subplot in Frontline concerned the Greece-Macedonia bun fight, and even that's gone off the boil. For Frontline to work, it must be more immediate. Otherwise, it might soon do an Alan Jones. Oh my god. Ooh. How funny that I, 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 hates uh, Drop the Dead Donkey, but uh, Ross Warnicky loves it. <laughs> and, but really, like, yeah, the shows are, are two polar opposites. Absolutely. Here. There's no point comparing them. Oh, look, I, I feel, much as I, I'm not inclined to sympathise with Warnicky, it sounds like he's only had the first episode to go from. Mm. And I, yeah. Frontline, I think, is definitely the kind of show where once you've seen a few episodes and you see the, the range of things they're covering, a lot of his comments would look silly even to him. Yeah, yeah I, I, do, I do think in hindsight, yeah, considering he's only seen the one episode, um, yeah, some of the stuff that he, he mentioned should be covered. Um, yeah, it does get covered later on in the series. In, in this episode, we're about to talk about some of the stuff yeah. that he's arguing for is covered. So, yeah, but I mean, he is the main thrust of his complaint seems to be there are no topical gags. And, you know, I guess they could have gone down that drop the dead donkey route, but they made a creative decision not to. And actually, you know, I think it's probably a stronger show for it in a lot of ways, because I think if you watch drop the dead donkey now, it would be a baffling program. I mean, it was kind of baffling them because it was British as well. A lot of the stuff. <laughs> well, exactly. They were they were referencing British stories that we hadn't necessarily got. And also it was two weeks old anyway, by the time we saw it on SBS. So yeah, but it had there was a lot, a lot of stuff that just. <laughs> well, the good thing about Frontline is we're watching it, you know, 30 years on and, and it's still as relevant today. And when we were watching The Late Show, yeah. spending two years thinking back to some topical news stories and thinking, what the hell was that? Some very it's obscure references timeless. in The Late Show. It's interesting because yeah. this yes. episode has heaps of obscure references like Andrew Eddinghausen and we'll get to that. But um, yes. I, I think I like, I like the way the, the main arc, of the storyline is essentially fabricated. So it doesn't have to be, you know, topical. It's like what they were all kind of here watching on current affairs at the time and they've given their spin on it. And I, I think that's more timeless in a way. Well, the whole sort of point of Frontline in a way is like showing how the these patterns play out through the through the media constantly. So it doesn't matter which, you know, celebrity is doing what now, six months from now, somebody else will be put through the same ringer. And so the, the point is to more educate you to see the patterns underneath than just go, you know, ha-ha, they're, you know, they're making fun of that guy that was throwing up outside the casino last week. <laughs> it's like, no, for a current affair to work, somebody has to throw up outside the casino every three months. And it doesn't matter if it's real or not, they'll find a way to make it happen. One other reason why I read that Ross Warnicky review is uh, that uh, it does get replied to in the letters page of the Green Guide, but uh, I'll save that for another episode. Sizzle. I'm also very, uh, <laughs> it's certainly <a> sizzle. <laughs> uh, I'm also very intrigued by that last line, that Frontline must be more immediate, otherwise it may soon do an Alan Jones. <laughs> Yeah, like, no. uh, get arrested in, in London or... Be, no. be axed, I think, is the reference. <laughs> Although, mind you, these days it could, um, you know, considering what Alan Jones does now, which is essentially a webcast, could refer to that. 
He's direct to the people, though. Yeah, but look, I couldn't think of anything sadder than going on the internet and talking to a very limited audience. <laughs> oh, by the way, if you're enjoying this podcast, Hello to our three listeners, rating. by the way. Yes. <laughs> All right, that's uh. it. Let's move on. All right, well, thank you very much for that, Daniel. But it seems unlikely that a brief chat between Goff and Mal will suddenly solve everything. You sick, poisonous... I'll talk to you at a later later date on corruption in a place at a time that you probably won't like. He entered the water here and was never seen again. Don't worry about it, Ron. You'll see it in the ballot box, mate. We'll win. Hello, I'm Daniel G., this is Season 1, Episode 2, broadcast Monday, May 16th, 1994, The Desert Angel. You did a great job there. Marvellous, uh, Mike Moore impersonation. <laughs> 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 so, so as Daniel said, it is the Desert Angel. Well, this is the synopsis. Uh, word comes through to Frontline that a beautiful aid worker, presumed dead after going missing in the Sudanese desert, has turned up alive. At the same time, a rival network tries to poach Mike Moore and Brooke Vandenberg interviews Pat Cash for her celebrity profile series. Only Brian Thompson seems to have his mind on the main game, and that is getting the Desert Angel. I couldn't find any story that kind of related to the Desert Angel thing because of the any connectivity to a real-life moment. The second episode in, they've already got another big-name star on the show. Well, look, it felt to me a lot like they had a lot of references and satirical points that they were going to make that weren't strong enough to build an episode on. So they came up with a central idea and then they could weave in, you know, the Pat Cash sort of storyline and a bunch of the other things, um, which were sort of, you know, sprinkles on the comedy donut, as it were. Mm, delicious donut too. I can shed a tiny bit of light on what this, uh, on what this Desert Angel storyline might be in reference to. Well, first of all, we should talk about the, um, the unseen... Uh, character throughout this uh, episode being one Harry M. Miller. Mm. It turns out that uh, uh, Harry M. sent a bit of feedback to uh, the Frontline crew uh, about his uh, featuring in their storyline, and it was written about uh, by Shelley Dempsey in her Antenna column, uh, which is it's like a TV and radio industry gossip column in the uh, Sydney, Morn- Sydney Morning Herald Age. She says that the episode storyline is a variation on the real-life Iceman story, where Harry M made history by not allowing the brand of chocolate bar which kept James Scott on ice for weeks in the Himalayas to be divulged on 60 Minutes. Ah. And was it a Mars bar? (laughs) I haven't been able to find, well, much about uh, James Scott um, or which brand of chocolate bar. Wasn't there also a Stuart Diver in Threadbow? That was he 97, survived... though. Okay, yeah. so he on chocolate? Okay, so Harry and Miller did represent Stuart Diver as well, but I more associate the chocolate bar with, darn, I've forgotten his name, the English yachts, uh, yachting guy, damn it. Oh, Tony Bullimore. Tony Bullimore, that's the guy. Did he also survive on chocolate? That was 2006, I... though, because that was Get This time. But, yeah, I, I definitely don't, don't associate that with Stuart Diver. 
So basically, if you're going to get lost somewhere, have some chocolate with you and don't reveal the brand name so that you can appear in ads for it saying, hello, I'm blah and I survived X because of your chocolate bar. Great. But I think we're sniffing up the right pole here or whatever. (laughs) Tortured analogy. Um, Because clearly it's about a survivor who's, you know, ready to tell their story and then current affairs program go into a bin And wants to get a Bitcoin for it, you know? I mean, honestly. Well, Harry and Bella was was a running joke, you know, through the 90s for finding ways to superimpose himself between any regular folk who was in the news and, you know, Australia's media outlets. I'm sure there were loads of jokes about, you know, Harry and Miller was the first one on the site of the rescue <laughs> and, you know, he was, the, he was the first person to pull them out of the wreckage. You know, he, he was always known for being that guy who could get in there and, and make sure there yeah. was a deal to be made. But, you know, to be fair, if you're, if you're going to tell your story to the media, you'd want a bit of money for it. I would think. Well, that's because Frontline is set during this sort of transition. But, like, when they've got Mike Moore is outraged at the idea of checkbook journalism, it's like, good luck finding anyone who cares about checkbook journalism now, whereas, you know, 10 or 15 years before Frontline, that was a horrible sin. You would never do it. Frontline really, I think, did a great job of capturing this point of transition where the Australian media was going from pretending that these shows were real journalism to now when they're just entertainment. Nobody watches a current affair to expect, you know, politicians seriously being interviewed. It's, you know, Mm. the neighbour from hell. Yeah, but what a lull, actually, the idea that we were outraged by checkbook journalism where now it's like if you see, you know, Carl Stefanovic in a, you know, playground brawl, you're going to film it and hope that you get some (laughs) cash for that, you know. Like that's just how the world works now. Oh, yeah. It's interesting you're talking about, checkbook journalism is a, is a given nowadays, but, you know, a lot of people still may not be aware. We may be a bit more aware being kind of involved in it. But, you know, back in the 90s, it was a, a, once some, I know it's something that we all talked about in my university journalism class and um, the ethics, the code of ethics from the, um, you know, the Media and Arts Alliance was were being rewritten around the mid 90s. And I was just looking up, um, it took them about six years to actually um, revise the code of ethics, which initially um, the it was from the 1940s originally. Then in the 80s, they revised Jeez. it again. And it took them six years to actually finalise um, a draft code, uh, an actual code, um, which was double the length of the 1984 one. And it included things like checkbook journalism and actually um, accuracy in images. So even back then, they were talking about digitally altering pictures, um, accuracy in quotations and things like that. But there was a huge backlash because it was... Um, really uh, long, really long-winded and didn't kind of have those general um, rules that we should all be following as, as journalists. Um, and then I think in the end it, it ended up being one of the simplified versions, so it didn't actually reference the checkbook journalism and, and all that stuff in the end. Um, but certainly it shed light on it. Not to preempt too much, Kim, but is this the one that's described later on in, in the series as being essentially a pamphlet? It could be, yeah. I don't. I didn't look at the actual um, the length of the length of it, but it it may well be a reference to that because it took a very long time for them to to finalise it. So maybe they reduced it to the size of a pamphlet. <laughs> but if you look at it now, it's only a couple of pages long. But as all good pirate movies will tell you, a code should be pithy and easily remembered. <laughs> I went to a far shonkier journalism school by the sounds of things. But we were, like, these things were kind of mentioned, but. 
I think that there was always like two kinds of journalism schools. There was the ones that were quite sort of academic and highbrow, and it was like the ethics of this and the moral quandaries. And then there was the one that I went to, which was much more <laughs> get a job, keep the job. <laughs> this is the job. And yeah, it was very much like, look, you know, you've got you're competing with other people for stories. And if you have somebody in your organization who's willing to throw money, um, you let them throw that money because, you know, it helps you do your job. And a lot of the time your job is something. Yeah, you, you're chasing. You're not quite chasing ambulances, but, you know, you, you're standing around dubious events trying to find someone who'll talk to you. And, you know, if they're sketchy types, you may have to, you know, cross some palms with silver. <laughs> Wow, Tony, you're the graduate Tony. of the Journalism School oh. of Hard Knocks. Shame, well, shame. Probably more successful as a result because, you, yeah, exactly. You know, you know exactly I what, what it's all about. I was successful. I never got anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, a couple of people I did go to school with did do well, but generally, yeah, more in the business side of things. I don't think we had any gun reporters coming out of unnamed university <laughs> in the early <laughs> This part of Frontline, starting off with uh, the show being lampooned by a particular sketch comedy show. Ah, uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, the, the comedy bunch, which kind of sounded similar to that, uh, as Front Up with, you know, here's an Easter egg for you. Uh, the sketch. Jeff Payne. Yes, Jeff Payne, who's actually a degenerator. Yes, he is a degen member. Yes, yeah. <laughs> parroting Mike Moore. So, uh... Brian, did you watch the comedy bunch last night? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Very funny. Really? Yeah, yeah, well, a little undergraduate. Were they having a go at me? Sort of. But I don't always have my head like this. That's yeah, a, mate, it's an exaggeration. Your profile's lifting. Yeah, but if you're not going to be you taken seriously, be if you're not going to be taken seriously, sit down, sit down. Look, there are two signs that you've arrived in this game, and one of them is a comedy show doing a parody. Oh, great. What's the other one? Ten or nine trying to poach him. Uh, and that sets the scene, really. See, there's that, there's yeah, that but the undergraduate. So I mm-hmm. feel like that they're also having a ripping of, towards themselves, perhaps. Yeah, and they're also saying, look, this is not undergraduate humour now. We're, we're, in, we're the big guys. We've got a prime time slot now and we're doing all this uh, intellectual satire. I just like the way it was a callback to a forgotten era where there were comedy shows that would actually make fun of local comedian, um, local identities. Yeah. Or for that matter, networks that would try and poach other shows' hosts. I think you just wait now till the other guy's show gets cancelled and he shows up at your door. So the desert angel, Jessica Steckel, uh, the young aid worker, is in the Sudanese desert and he's found alive. So Frontline already gave her a memorial with Mike giving the eulogy with really... Oh, oh man. Beautiful awkwardness. Love it. That's a great eulogy. Can you believe they actually did that without a body? Like, what the hell? Well, presumably there must be situations where, like, someone's been eaten by a shark or something where they have to go, well, well, you're dead, but we don't have you here, so we've got to bury something. I.e. Harold Holt. Well, yeah, Harold Holt's the obvious. But there must be, it must be relatively common that, you know, you have to say, well, it was a memorial service. It's framed as a memorial service, which is fine. It's not a funeral. It's not like, you know, she she fell into a steel smelter <laughs> and, you know, she's dead, but we don't have a body. So we don't so have a body, have but do we something. do have this Terminator that's emerged. So, <laughs> great. <laughs> 
You do have this metal stool that was made. And... It's got weird. Okay. <laughs> Inanimate carbon rod. <laughs> Or the prayer, the prayer at the end of the sign-off, which is visual mainly, but anyway. Yes, the good night directed yeah. to the heavens. Yeah. Good, good, good night, and then looking up to the heavens. Yeah. Good night. Good night. <laughs> I think what's also interesting is the way that they try and fudge everything. Uh, you know, uh, we didn't say that she was going to do uh, medicine. Uh, we said that she uh, wanted to do medicine. <laughs> yes. You know, she wasn't really a straight A student. Yeah, but see, all of that is really, like, that is not a surprise at all for people, you know, when you've made this, how, know how the sausage is made, there's a lot of, well, there's a bit of vagary around this, so we'll just push it, you know, to one side rather than the other. And I think what Frontline did really well was just bring to, you know, the public's awareness that if someone's not saying something definitely, then it's almost certainly made up if it's on these shows because they can make it up. They can say, you know, oh, committed to, you know, social work or whatever because they went to an op shop once because that's, you know, near enough. It's, it's they're painting a picture. It doesn't have to be based on reality. And I think Frontline really pointed out to people that these shows aren't real journalism. They're entertainment. There's also an interesting little tidbit from the script book that says that the, well, the sad classical guitar music in the, uh, the Desert Angel death piece according to the script, is Cavatina from the movie The Deer Hunter. Now, I don't think that's what was used in the final Yeah, I'm pretty program, sure that wasn't Cavatina. Cavatina, as, 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 as far as I can, I can tell, is three, four <laughs> time. And I think all of the sad classical guitar music was four, four Nerd time. facts here, folks. You heard them first. Yes. <laughs> I'm really pleased you got your metronome out, Daniel. Well done. <laughs> That, 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 is, that is commitment to this podcast to buy a metronome and set it up and tick it along. Good on you. The next scene has uh, John Smith slash Neil Byrne from Channel 9 calling, uh, Mike, who oddly sounds like Colin Conacher, who was working on the <laughs> copier in the background. Yeah. He does, doesn't he? He really Colin, does. He is my favourite character in this entire... He's a scene stealer. He's always pulling pranks that uh, Colin Conacher. I actually didn't spot him in this episode. Yeah. I need he was to there. He was right. It. He was there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he was there. Um, if you watch it back again, um, it is right at that moment where it switches to the office. Uh, just before that, you'll see Colin. Okay, yes, we absolutely need to make it a hallmark of the podcast that we give away the timestamp, please. Okay. Next yeah. time. Well, if they're streaming on Stan or something like that. <laughs> we, yeah. we need a segment called Where's Colin, as in Where's Wally, where we yeah, point and, out and it where needs where Colin. Where's Colin? Where's Colin? Find him. Found Send him. it. <laughs> Tweet out a screenshot with, with hashtag Where's Colin. We'll start Merch. a Colin Conica yep. fan club and a page and Twitter account. You just got to make sure you photocopy it. With a photocopy of your bum. Yeah. It's, it's a photocopy <laughs> newsletter goes out monthly <laughs> in the post. On a con- photocopied on a Konica. It's a like proper 90s style yes. newsletter. Fanzine. fanzine kind of thing. Yeah. Do it. That's what we fanzine. do with the podcast yeah. to create a fanzine, print it out, send it off, and then sticky tape uh, the podcast on as cassette tapes to the e zine. <laughs> um, <old laughs> oh, <school>. my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So after that phone call, Brian receives annoying news about the aid worker. And this is my favorite bit, too. So you got to listen carefully. Get on to her, Mum? Yeah. So did Harry and Miller. No. 
gonna have to bid for it. God, we paid for the fucking memorial service. Yeah, so we could film it. Yeah, she doesn't know that. <laughs> yeah, but Harry M does. That was unaltered, so I don't know what version you were all watching it on. That was directly from the DVD where they've just quickly muted it. They, they, they would have had to, like, even for 1993 standards, 8, eight o'clock at night, you couldn't get away with the F word um, at that time of night. Did everyone pick that up too? No, I did not. Actually, talking of how we watched it, I've got a yet another gripe about the quality of the video. So this time I'm also watching it on Stan and it was around this scene with coming up with um, Jeff and Mike chatting by the cappuccino machine that I had to just stop and go, what the hell? So I'm watching it on Stan and I'm, I'm a povo and I'm only paying for the base rate, which is SD, and the scene was so poor quality. It was like it was pixelated. I will say I've been watching mine on DVD and yeah. like the first print edition DVD. Yeah, yeah. And there was a, a tape interference. So it was like a... Uh, ah, like just yeah, bad it's, quality it's like blink and miss it. format. Yeah, so right. I think there was something wrong with the master tape or whatever and they just had to push along with it. Okay. Yeah, so I think that might have not translated too well being digitised. That'll be another hallmark of the podcast. I'll just constantly gripe about the quality of the video. Oh, Moving on. That's just more. Pedantry. <laughs> we need a segment for you. Yeah, we no, we no forget pedantry. Yeah. We need a little segment for you. <laughs> Prue's gripes or something, right? And we're just some kind of crackly <laughs> stuff underneath it too. Dial. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting hearing like all of these thoughts from Brian about, you know, how you know, if she's a sullen bitch, we'll do our dough. Mm. Just like hearing that sort of mm. frankness coming out of him and like asking, is she definitely going to live? <laughs> like it's just, it's so shocking hearing that happen, but you know that those sort of conversations would have been happening in newsrooms all the time. Yeah, try to write people off all for the sake of ratings and to is it, narrate their is own it story. Is it worth yeah. the, the expenditure? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, one of the... One of the running jokes amongst you know, some people I know, including myself in the media, <laughs> there's a line from, I don't know which version of Rollerball it is, but they're going, <laughs> you know, this dramatic, they're killing them for the ratings. It's because that's exactly how it works. I, I, watching Frontline, it's just like, yep, yep. But so, just sort of so, nodding away. Throughout this episode, it's, it's, it's all yeah, about that, is isn't it? To, and. Yeah. All this stuff about, you know, is she good looking? Yeah. You know, is she good talent? Is she someone we can put on a game show yeah. or on a holiday show or, you know, get, give her own series to down the line? Yeah. You know, it's not just a story for them. They they want to make her a personality. And that actually happened yeah. to people like Stuart Diver, didn't it, I think? Yeah, it, it was quite common that you would sort of drag out a, you know, half-baked media career from, you know, some death-defying event. But, I mean, the whole point of Frontline is that this is how these things are made. And if you had people in the back rooms sort of being concerned about, you know, these people and, you know, putting their welfare first, they would last about 10 minutes before somebody hard-hearted came along and got the job done quicker and cheaper. And that's just, that's where you end up. Frontline is the end of, you know, decades of we've got to get these shows out and we've got to make this sort of work. And you end up with, yeah, it's like... <laughs> damn, she's still alive, that ruins our day sort of thing. 
Yeah, I think it was, they said it was a, an inconvenience. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> She's alive. It's an inconvenience. So we'll go, cross over to Mike, and who is telling uh, Jeffrey about his Channel 9 luncheon encounter. It's Kerry Francis Bullmore Packer. Walks up to me and says, so you're the bastard who's been causing us all the problems. Ow! Yeah, I know. He said he's watched every show for the last four weeks. And this is still Kerry Packer, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah he yeah. said there's only two true stars on Australian television, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ray Martin and Mike Moore. Said he wants me at the network. They pay a sign-on fee, a development deal. Development deal? That means he can get your docos up. Exactly. <gasps> They're going to get up now. You know what? I wish those smart asses at the comedy bunch could hear this right now. Those oh, well. undergraduate smart asses. <laughs> so they're revving themselves again. It's old degeneration bullshit. Oh, even 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 better. There's a there's a line cut from the the script that's uh, that Jeff says just after that undergraduate smart asses. He says. Thank God I'm a regional celebrity. They can't touch me. I did have to laugh at the bit about him getting his documentaries up because that was seemed to be quite a thing on you know through the 90s. I think like a lot of the Channel 9 news readers and that would have their broadcast on a Sunday night documentary about their sailing trips or, you know, <laughs> exploring, quite, you know, South Australia's wine country or that kind of thing. And you just get it. Yeah, this is somebody's getting the thank you. It's for making this. me think of David McGann's world around us. <laughs> yes, it, it, it reminds me particularly of a sketch out of the McAuliffe program where <laughs> it's called "Getting Away with It," and they had uh, Francis go around and he orders eight banana daiquiris at the bar. <laughs> getting so, away with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now I, I do did enjoy this bit. So this is where Brooke is uh, becoming assigned to quote flirt pieces unquote. <gasps> I know. Pack cash. <laughs> no, you said you wanted a flat <gasps> piece. There is no way to pack cash. What are you doing? Can you know it was a brook? What if it's only a rumour? It's not. What? I know it's not. Have you know? Okay. That establishes the second storyline going on, the second story arc. Yeah, it was quite funny, this bit. It was, yeah, isn't, yeah, isn't this something? And they, they mentioned quite a lot of... Uh, um, other real life examples of the flirt. <laughs> yeah, I like the one that was uh, like Alex Paps. Oh, where are they now? <laughs> most, most of them involving Tracy Curo on sixty minutes and uh, Michael Crawford. Only if we can surgically remove him from Ray Martin. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the Yana event and Dustin. I, I don't remember this interview, but when I tried to Google it, apparently Dustin was obsessed with um, Yana's eyes, and there was a bit of a flirtation happening during the interview. So if anyone can dig that up, that would be interesting to see. But wasn't that Yana's? Like that's exactly that, why yeah, that, that's Mark right. Downey did that send up of her. Like, <laughs> she was very droll. <laughs> and what about the weathermen doing lotto? Like, did Monty ever do lotto? Who, who uh, he was did lotto? he was too excitable. <laughs> no, it's, well, there was that other by nice the guy, that stretch guy. Didn't he do? Um, Brian Deary. Not Brian Deary, the other one, the one with the... De- yeah, he did Keno. Dennis Walter did. Fa- Not, famously yeah, he did parody. Keno. He did Keno. I'm thinking of that other one, that David something, David Brown maybe? Am I making these words up? <laughs> I'm sure he did tats anyway. He was he was easy on the eye. <laughs> anyway, right in if you uh, know who the hell we're talking about. <laughs> So Brian crushes Mike's dream luncheon, really, and reciting what basically happened word for word or mannerism for mannerism. And in the, <laughs> I don't know whether I should tell this story or not, but I'm going to say it generic enough, so therefore it can easily sound like a fictional story because the person who told me this was a friend of a friend. But 
I trust that friend of a friend. Okay, <laughs> so in regards to someone who's big, high up, uh, a rich person was trying to get a particular talent for that entertainment network. <laughs> I'm being cautious because if I if this With is so not true, yeah, all right. And the owner wanted that person to be part of the talent bank more, okay? And they were resisting. So that talent ended up having a show. God, you were being cautious. Yeah, I was being cautious yeah, because you're being too cautious. I was yes. like, and I haven't heard anyone else confirm with me. I don't know how, whatever it is. So that's why I've tried to say it in that way. <laughs> so if you at home uh, listening on the podcast can work out who he, she, it or they are, um, drop us an email. You won't get a prize or anything. But uh, uh, yeah, guess who don't sue. That is pretty much, uh, may or may not be a work of fiction. <laughs> All, all we could say is that who knew that Skippy was such a tough negotiator? <laughs> oh. So there's an interesting bit that happens after that conversation where Brian kind of crushes Mike's dreams, and that is that the conversation switches over to talking about the latest with Harry and Miller. And um, in the show, Brian refers to Harry and Miller as a ticket seller, and I thought that's a, that's an interesting way to refer to Harry and Miller. And then I looked in the script, and if you go to page 37 of the book Frontline, the story, behind the story, behind the stories, you can see the ac- the actual scripted line is he calls Harry and Miller an ex-con. And I thought, okay, that's even more interesting. So so they've t- obviously toned it down from, from ex-con to ticket seller. And I, I looked this up, and this is kind of interesting. So back in the 70s, 1978 to be accurate, Harry M. Miller actually started a ticketing company called CompuTicket, which went into receivership within six months. And as a result of that, he was found guilty of aiding and abetting the misappropriation of $728,000 in funds, and he was sentenced to three years in jail. So hence the ex-con line. And he actually only served 10 months, but yeah, he served it at Long Bay and Cessnock Correctional Centres. So yeah, there's a there's an interesting little reference there that you might not have um, understood. And there you go. That's me explaining it to you. Yeah, that's really interesting. What do you got? Um, Pat Cash said yes. Great. And the ticket seller? Mr Miller said 50000 Not negotiable. No, I definitely want it. Oh, I have to get approval. Hang on. We're not going to pay for the Desert Angel. We've got no We're not going to pay for We've that story. We've got no choice. Your mate Kerry wants it as well. Seems like he thinks he can buy anything. Yeah, the ticket seller, right? I mean, it would have been quite interesting if they'd actually gone with ex-con. Obviously but, the lawyers yeah, got to it. Wouldn't this book yeah, be so much more but, interesting but, but, if it had lawyer notations on it? Like, <laughs> yeah, delete oh, that. Oh, change that. Totally. <laughs> but, but what's interesting is that it's okay to put it in the book but it's not okay to broadcast it. Yeah, so, maybe there's something yeah. about mm. libel that you're like allowed to print. But I don't know. I think so because it's still it's still being. Maybe it was a mistake to leave it in frame. here. Mm. Maybe it was just one of those improv things, and they had toyed with the yeah. idea of 
calling a ticket yeah. seller as well. It, it could very well have just been that after 15 odd years, people didn't remember Harry and Miller as being an ex-con. Yeah. And they kind of, uh, if we're not going to explain it, we might as well. That's the kind of thing that we either need to explain or just let it go. Yeah. They might have at the time look it's not yeah, worth it, it wouldn't be but, liable but ticket, if it was ticket true. seller though but ticket seller is a is a reference to to this computer ticket company that he had and and the thing is harry and miller was famous for being a talent manager essentially but remember back in the 90s you'd go to concerts or whatever and it was always harry and miller presents on the ticket what i thought was more interesting with this bit was that the way that Mike Moore is presented as being this commercial ingenue <laughs> because he's come from the ABC. It's just hilarious now that anyone at the ABC would be in any way unaware of commercial realities. There's just sort of this idea that back then, yeah, the ABC was full of these people with their heads in the clouds, whereas now it's it's just another organisation. You wouldn't come there, come out of the ABC thinking, oh, no, journalism, paying for interviews, what a shock. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the Mike Moore character sometimes is a bit unbelievable because he is just slightly too naive. But the thing is, he has to be naive to be funny, you know. And, yeah. and there's there's a couple of jokes coming up where you know you just think, oh come on, you know. Of course you mm. you understand that, but of course he doesn't because he's yes. kind of an idiot for comedy and reasons. <laughs> yeah. They have to have somebody who doesn't understand so they can explain it to them. Something I noticed in the script um, is Brian letting out a whistle uh, after uh, Emma mentions that uh, Harry and Miller wants 50000 And it reminds me so much of this joke-slash-concept uh, which was used later in The Hollow Men, uh, talking about how an amount of money is, when used in a political announcement, is so big when it induces a whistle out of somebody. <laughs> you know, like like Powerball is a hundred uh, is a hundred million dollars. <laughs> I can't whistle. <laughs> so Marty and Stu discover that Brooke is doing a story on Pat Cash, and I love that whole sale of the century type all game show type of ribbing in regards to prizes, jacking up the price. Then station manager Ian Farmer, which is Jared Kennedy from Homicide Division Four and pretty much a lot of the Crawford production library. Yeah, he's got a really great line, can I say it? It was like, uh, I thought you would never top Grant Dodwell. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh yeah, when when Brian sort of comes in as Don Willisey. Now, I I actually looked up Don Willisey, and and he is, in fact, Mike Willisey's dad, but also he was a politician from Western Australia, if you really want to know Go to you. Go to Wikipedia and find out more about Don Willisy. But I thought that was a funny reference. I thought it was like some sort of lesser-known Willisy brother, like the Zeppo of the Willisys. <laughs> he, he's, he's Daddy Willisy. He's, that we never he's knew about. the dad of them all. Don Willisy. Another thing from the uh, script uh, is Brian asking uh, Ian, uh, "What about uh, getting one of our people to host? Uh, sorry, what about getting Mike to host Carols by Candlelight?" And in the broadcast, uh, Ian Farmer says, try prying that away from you-know-who. In the script, you-know-who is replaced by Mr. Waxy Fingers. <laughs> <That's so funny. laughs> who, who the hell do they mean by that? Is it Dennis Watersman? Uh, well, Ray, I mean, Ray I mean, Martin. Oh, it's oh, Ray, Martin. Ray Martin. 
Oh, right. I don't know what they mean by Mr. Waxy Fingers. <laughs> yeah, wa- wax. Is this some sort of a scandal that's been swept under the rug that we don't know about? It's putting the wax in the hair. Oh, that's <laughs> why his fingers are waxy. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, so it's not just holding too many candles. No, no, it's it's getting that hair, that <laughs> helmet. It's tricky though, because wasn't there two Carol by candlelight? This Carol was in the domain, and that was always Mister Kino, wasn't it? Yeah, Dennis, Dennis Walter. Walter. No, no, Den- Dennis Walter is definitely Carol's by candlelight. Oh, right. No, so but Ray hosted in the nineties. Ray hosted. Dennis Walter. No, no, no. Well, no, no. Dennis Walter would appear on Carol's by candlelight. The Melbourne one. The Melbourne one. Because yeah. I used to watch the Melbourne one oh, every yeah, year. I used to watch it. I've right. no idea who hosted the Sydney one in the Domain in the nineties. To be honest. And who hosted the Domain one? No idea. Yeah. No, <laughs> I. Whoever was passing by. Yeah. Probably the weatherman. Right. I'm so glad we've covered off these importances. <laughs> it was Ray. It was always Ray. Mike talks about Brooke and Pat Cash with Marty and Stu. Hey, guys, guys, guys. Do you hear Brooke's doing Pat Cash tomorrow? Yeah, she's already done it. <laughs> <laughs> she hasn't interviewed Pat Cash before. Not so much interviewing more of a reunion, I think. <laughs> Actually, is it going to be a closed set? <laughs> <laughs> Set. Tennis set. Yeah. See? See this is this is Mike Moore this is Mike Moore being slightly too dumb to be credible, but also funny. So I actually really like that they did that though, because the misogyny is really high, right? Yeah. Like yeah. not not only is, is it these two clowns who are always joking around and hanging it on Brooke. There's also quite a lot from Brian in this episode, I reckon, too, about the whole Desert Angel thing. And it's a little bit hard to handle, you know. So I like the way Mike is the comedy stooge where he's not he's not getting the joke and that's the joke, but it's also because he's not getting the joke that makes him not a harasser. He's like, he's he, just... He, he, remains, good guy. he remains somewhat pure. <laughs> yeah, he's dancing yeah. through the, the drops, yeah. you know, so I kind of like that. <laughs> he's a bit, more, a bit more wholesome, so we don't mind him for that, even if he is a little silly. Plus they're talking about <laughs> his yeah, wife, a... so... <laughs> the misogyny around the Pat Cash thing is quite interesting because we find out later that Brooke actually started the rumour that, that she had slept with Pat Cash. Mm, it was and, me. <laughs> and, and there's this whole theory from Stu and Jace about how, you know, oh, um, these women in the media, they've got to have this rumour about how they got off with some rock star or whatever. And and I, I just, I find the whole sexual politics around that really bizarre because I'm thinking who would, what, what woman would actually do that to themselves? There was a rumour. <laughs> well, okay, we know, oh, we know, we know that rumour. We, we all know that okay, rumour. Okay, cool. All right, then, then I won't bring that up. But in part it's because Frontline was on at this particular time in Australian media where like 10 or 15 years earlier, women reporters were much more you know, weren't so common and 10 or 15 years later it's like, well, everyone yeah, is a, you they're know. The, they're the front person the in many cases. Yeah, they're the ones running the show. This is like this period where they're becoming more and more present but you've still got men kind of setting the agenda and setting the tone mm. and so they're sort of forced into this, oh, I'm here as a bit of, you know, eye candy and I'm here to flirt sort of position that they're put into and that's kind of, you know, part of the thing I always felt with Brooke's character is that she's 
someone who's playing the game and is kind of going, well, this is what, you know, this is how my job works at the moment. I've got to be this sort of seen as this person who's, you know, getting it on with the, the, the you know, the famous people. <laughs> Just on that, perhaps we can uh, have a look at the um, character profile of uh, Brooke that's, uh, that's in the script book. Extremely ambitious, Brooke Vandenberg has had limited journalistic experience. She had a grade C cadetship from the now defunct 3XY radio station in Melbourne. <laughs> but she looks good on television and can ape that classic interviewer style so well that everyone is fooled into believing she's got it. Brooke is 30 years old and realises she has limited on-camera life, which is why she has her sights set on becoming a reporter for the American 60 Minutes program as soon as possible. She can't understand why Yana got the gig. She has a very healthy social life, particularly with high-profile, powerful men, and is enjoying her own rising profile through the publicity machine of the network. Mm. Interesting profile on Brooke. (laughs) More of that story Mm. later. Mm. Mm. (laughs) Back in my journalism days, in my class, there were, like... There was a range of people, you know, studying journalism for various reasons and because they wanted to do different things. And there were, I think, maybe in like 60-odd people, there were two or three young women who were clearly like, I want to be on television. And it was very much sort of looks-focused. And that was really, that was an avenue, that was how you got into certain aspects of journalism. It was like, if I look really good and I can read off an auto cue and, you know, not fumble some basics of presentation, I have a good shot of getting a television career. And that's often what happened. That was a path that you could take at those days. You didn't have to study journalism quite so much because you were going to be reading things that, you know, a producer was going to write for you. It was your job was to present it in a certain way. Mm, I'm sure Jane saw a lot of that. Didn't she do journalism or did she? Yeah, she was a well, she was the newsreader on um, that was how she got into the yeah. gym, wasn't it? She was... I just can't remember if she did arts or whether she specifically did journalism. Again, there's, there's also biographies for the, for the actors portraying the characters. So the one for Jane Kennedy starts uh, that uh, she was a producer and on-air announcer on Melbourne radio station 3UZ um, as well as a news presenter on Triple N. Uh, Jane was inducted into the, de- into the degeneration and removed from the newsroom for laughing during the news stories. Mm-hmm. Brooke, in fact, had a higher cadetship than Jane. <laughs> so after Brian fluffs Mike's ego to keep him on board at the station, Mike then realises he's the last to know about Brooke and Pat having a fling after Jeffrey reveals here that he already knew <laughs> as well as everyone else. <laughs> apparently everybody one. knows. Yeah. So Jan, the publicist, works with... <laughs> Works with Brian to make a quote for Mike. I'm so pleased, Brian. Publicity have been in an absolute spin and Mike's such a sweetie, I love him. Okay, unfortunately you're not feeling a bit well, so you can bail on this, but are you able to do your best accent on that too? Uh, Okay, I'll give it a go. Let me just get the script. Say whatever you feel comfortable with. <laughs> this is this is probably not, not you this, dirty cow. No, I'm not doing dirt, dirty cow. <laughs> dirty cow. Um, Jan is talking to Brian about all the exciting things that Mike is looking forward to. Um, he's staying at the network and he's he's looking forward to all these things. And then she gets a phone call, and it's from someone called Mandy, and he says. 
He's definitely saying here. Uh, okay, sorry. Mandy, darling, all wrong, sweetheart. He's definitely staying here. They're a bunch of silly old pricks. That's what they are. Something like that. <laughs> um, oh, sorry. No, the actual the actual line is, they're a bunch of silly old pricks, aren't they? That that was too British. But anyway, that, that's basically. <laughs> thank you. Very good. I really love the way Jan yeah. takes off her. Um, Clip on earring before she has that phone oh, call. Oh God! Yeah. It's it's such a detail. Such happens? a brilliant character note. But the, the other thing, the other little joke that I like in that particular sequence is that she's she's written down this kind of bullshit press release quote, and then she she reads out the bullshit press release quote to Mandy, and they kind of mm. take the piss out of how unrealistic this press yeah. release quote is because you read yeah. any press release formal yeah 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 exactly exactly <laughs> because i don't know why this is but i mean everyone knows the quotes in press releases are total bullshit and no one's ever said that and never would ever but they always write them in that style why do yeah. they do that yeah and and then they'll just say oh insider you know not highly paid publicist told us to say this yeah. <laughs> but it, it's the formality of it. it's like you know i am i am desperately looking forward to staying with the network and doing some specials you know it's just no one talks like this no but the whole point is that it's it's an official statement it's not you know actually having mike moore say he wants to stay would be like 80 words of him rambling on about you know liking his car park or something it's like no we need that like, the story is going to be 250 words We've got, you know, 25 words for your quote. You need to say you're happy to stay. You're looking forward to the future. You're excited to be part of the family. That's it. And the, ne- and the network has his 100% support. If they're leaving to go to another job, then they're leaving to go to another job. If they're leaving for any other reason, they've been sacked and you just got to wait for them to find another job and then they can start talking uh-huh. about it. Yeah. But, yeah, it, it's always... It's those two things. I got a new job or they kicked me out of the old job, but I can't say I got kicked out of the old job. I'm leaving to, you know, explore my love of nature or, you know, the round the world cruise I've always wanted to do has finally, you know, lured me away from this well-paying job. So many round the world cruises, honestly, if you ever decide to hop on one, you're guaranteed to meet either an ex-TV, radio or journalist, someone, some and talent you can, out there. you can get COVID together on the high seas. The thing that I like is like, there are some publicists that I've known for like a lot, like 20 or 30 years now. People in, in the film industry tend to never leave. And so the same publicists are there. And I knew them when I was, you know, starting out and they were just a bit older than me and they were, you know, normal young people. And now they have aged into this frontline character. <laughs> so so you're, you're saying that you've encountered many Jans in your, uh, in your uh, profession? Technically they're called Georgies. Ah. Because there's been like three or four Georgie film publicists in Melbourne over the years. <laughs> don't know what, no one knows why, but there were... Uh, there was a period where they were all called Georgie. And, yeah, so like some of them, you know, some of them are the same, but Jan is a, is a type that some people age into. It's like the pressures of the job turn you into this person. Hey, there's a joke that Jan has. You know how the, there's a whole running joke about the 
the getaway vacation program and they can never remember the they name. They can't yeah. remember the name of their, of their so own So in this show. group, Jan just goes, guest spot on holiday, getaway, what's our one? I always forget. But in the show, um, the character says one more one that's quite funny and I can't remember it. Does anyone remember it? Go yeah, away. Double yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. I also just want to quickly uh, read the profile for Jan because it's it's quite uh, a contrast with um, uh, with uh, Brooke Vandenberg, a smart career woman who started in the business as a secretary. Jan has the magic touch when it comes to publicity. She runs a well-oiled machine and simply adores her network stars. Jan is one of the few women who hold an executive position in television and has no qualms about exercising that power. She is one of the founding members of The Coven. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Coven is presumably her and all the 3,000 Georgies getting together for white wine or something. <laughs> Technically, it can only be another two for a coven, I think. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. It's true. <laughs> so Channel 9 has completely outbid Frontline on the Desert Angel. So they decide to turn something that would have been positive into a fluff piece that is quite negative. You know, when you think about it, five weeks in 40 degree heat, no supplies. Does that sound sus to you? It sounds sus to me. Sounds real. True. Can we do a James Scott on it? We can't have a go at her. We don't have to. We get someone else to do that. It's amazing how they just flipped it like that. Just like, oh, fine, screw you. We'll we'll dig up some dirt. And also another mention of James Scott there, I just realised. The uh, the, the Iceman Mm. we mentioned earlier. I did a quick Google just then and um, they did talk about the chocolate bar and he said... You know, that didn't make any difference. <laughs> it was Cadbury. <laughs> it was. He, right. I ate them within a couple of days and it didn't do anything. I could have done without His them. blood sugar just spiked <laughs> and then he crashed. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, it made it so worse. Yeah, presu- pre- <laughs> so, yeah, in, presu- presumably in, in the context of, the, of their spoiling, it would be, you know, did that glass and a half really do anything? But, yeah, it's very educational just how, how um, Brian just twists the story around and, and just gets them, convinces them and just keeps um, giving them more more uh, angles to go by and, and how that turns out at the end, in, as we see in a few minutes. But that was a, a hallmark, from what I remember, of Frontline, in that they would sort of, as the episode went along, it would kind of build to this crescendo of flip-flopping where you would have to, you know, take a stand on one thing, then reverse it because something had changed and then flip back again. And it was very much this in the lead up to putting the show to where pretty much everything was up for grabs. And, you know, we'd say you were great, then we'd say you were awful, then we don't have the interview, then we do have the interview. And they would really sort of build to this point where, you know, Mike Moore would inevitably end up on the wrong side of things right before (laughs) he had to, you know, front up and say something the opposite to what he just said. Well, it's just like what you were saying earlier, Tony, about about Warnicky and just having to go with what the people were we're thinking yes that's sort of the whole point that it's like a to get to the end product you really sort of have to yeah stay on the right side everyone and flip-flop until you get there yeah. i do think this was quite instructional at the time there was some i remember in the at the 90s it was like oh we all knew the current affair was dodgy as but i don't think we had the language to explain what it was that was dodgy and and well 
unless you were a media or journalism student, but, you know, for the rest of us, it was like, what's going on here? This, pl- this program's terrible. And then Frontline comes along and sort of shows us the inner workings of this is why it's bad because one minute they love these characters who are real-life people with real-life stories uh, and the next minute they're turning on them. Knifing them in the back. Yeah, fair, fair weather friends, definitely. <laughs> so the Frontline don't have the Desert Angel and um, Brian tells Mike, Desert Angel's out. And then he says, I'm not paying for stories. I told them they could shove their checkbook journalism up their jacksies. Mike, Desert Angel is out. Why? You were right, mate. They can shove their checkbook journalism right up their jacksie. I've got a lot of respect for him. Brian, what's a jacksie? And actually, weirdly, in the script, it says I can shove their checkbook journalism up their ass. So anyway, he in the broadcast version, he goes with jacksie. I just like that because it was funny. I don't have any wider point about that. I just think that's a funny line. <laughs> and and, and also, I guess, okay, if you want me to have a wider point about that, it also goes back to Mike being a bit kind of too naive, but the fact that he is naive makes it funny. So there you go. So after they spend time taking audio grabs out of context in the production room, Mike goes on Neil Mitchell and he discusses that night's episode that's coming up. We're quite firm at Frontline now. We, we won't be paying people for stories. But you paid the topless hairdresser. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but she, she gave us a haircut. <laughs> that was my favourite bit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she gave us a haircut. It's kind of like, well, it's a general challenge. It's, it's the same kind of <laughs> <laughs> And finally, we get to the Pat Cash fluff piece with Brooke. And finally, how do you feel about being Pat Cash, the sex symbol? Oh, well, maybe 10 years ago, I had some fans and, uh, you know, Teeny Bot was following me, but it doesn't quite happen as much these days as well, older people, maybe the grandmas. Pat Cash, thanks for your time. Thank you. Great pleasure. So stock standard interview and then they show the behind the scenes of the cutaways and the, the faces. Noddies. Noddings, yep. And mm. then that's when Pat discovers who was spreading those rumours about him and Brooke sleeping together when they weren't. Yeah, it was Brooke. I think she might be offended as being referred to as a grandma <laughs> if she's still a fan of his. <laughs> I've got my... Uh, I noticed they were re- reading TV hits in the episode. I've got, I've got a TV hits here from... Uh, March 1994, that's the only one I could find. I probably eBayed all the... Uh, Does that have Dita Brummer uh, on the front? It's a Dita, yep, uh, R.I.P. Um, TV hits, and it's got um, the favourite male sports star. Obviously, there's no Pat Cash, but if you want me to read out the top 10 <laughs> sports stars in the in the poll, um, number no surprises. Is Andrew Ettinghausen in no, there? No, I was thinking... I uh, he's unfortunately, not. It's, it's the usual suspect. Tony Modra? Is Tony Modra <laughs> in there? No, you, oh, Actually, yes, he's number 10. So number one is Michael Jordan. You've got Kelly Slater. You've got Kieran Perkins, Shaq, Shane Warne, Mark Waugh, Willie Kahn. Don't know who that is. Brisbane Broncos footballer. Stefan Edberg, Gavin. Oh, yeah, he was a hottie. Footballer. Footballer. AFL. All the Melbourne references. Um, And then you've got the Tony. Godra. <laughs> yeah, my grandma loved Tony Modra. He, he was very much the sex symbol in around 1994, so that makes total sense. Can I just go back to the Pat Cash interview, though? I love the fact that um, they've 
obviously Stu and Jace are not the crew on this one, but the the guys who are doing the camera and the sound basically look exactly like them <laughs> and be- and standing. behave exactly like them. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's kind of it's kind of like a, a sort of internal joke, I suppose, that all camera and sound people are exactly the same. <laughs> all production people, basically. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Funny story. Majority of production people are named Matt. Oh, in my experience, it's been Dave. Dave or Matt. Yeah, it's a really common name. So, okay, what what we've learned today is that if you want to get into film publicity, you need to be called Georgie. (laughs) And if you want to get into production, you need to be called Matt or Dave. Okay, so start changing your names now, guys, if you've got aspirations in any of those areas. But I did try reaching out to Pat Cash uh, for this podcast and I got dadoed. He's a busy guy. After that, there's been a sudden backflip. The Desert Angel suddenly falls into the laps of Frontline after Channel 9 pulls out and they go live on TV only to discover Jessica uh, has a particular speech impediment. Yeah, what a... The only word I can think of for this last bit is it's essentially the punchline to the episode. Yes. Jessica uh, was played by Natasha Weber. Uh, who was actress and model, and I actually tried to reach out to her for the podcast. I didn't get quite dadoed, but uh, I, 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 get, I got a response. And Natasha is now an astrologist, uh, and also she appeared in one of our favourite movies of all time, Lou Inter Luigi's Big Movie <laughs> Theatre. <laughs> so you know which one I'm referring to, The Wog Boy. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yes, I saw I saw, I saw yeah. this on, on IMDb, uh, yeah, where she's a uh, Norwegian basketballer. I must, I must look it up. I'm pretty sure it's on Paramount Plus along with the, the two other sequels. So, unfortunately, Natasha couldn't make this recording, uh, but she was humbled to be asked to be part of the uh, podcast as well. Uh, and oddly enough, she actually has a podcast as well, which she hosts on iHeartRadio called Astrology Coach. So if you look that up, uh, for more information, if you go to astrotash.com and if you... Say the Champagne Comedy podcast sent you. Yeah, you'd probably get a filthy look, but <laughs> uh, the the fact that th- um, yeah, she was trying to make it but couldn't um, match it in time. So, but she did download and listen to the our podcast and gave us a thumbs up. So, thanks, Natasha. Hello out there, and hope you're well. Yeah, I'm gonna check out that podcast. It's a shame that she she is unable to come on because I'd be quite interested to know how she feels about the the show now because I, when i when i watched it i thought wow you wouldn't end with a punchline of someone's got a disability yeah. these days right it, it's yeah i mean Absolutely. it's it's yeah. product of its time it is it is a bit of a pro- i think you would end it in a slightly different way having said that i mean the show is leading up to this whole idea of you know we're only going to get someone on if they're good looking you know, or whatever. Yeah. And they and they talk about in the show about how they don't want anyone ugly and everything. So so, you know, you can absolutely understand in the context of the episode why Channel Nine would have dropped her when they found out she had a speech impediment because you know, they've got to have someone kind of hot and yeah. well presented and stuff. But it it's it's a difficult thing to watch these days because, you know, T V these days is not so ableist. You know, mm. TV is is including. It's, it's, not, it's, it's not so intolerant. Yeah, like that. yeah, exactly. And and so this wouldn't work today, but in the nineties, it, it definitely did. And I guess watching it now, it sort of feels slightly uncomfortable because it sort of feels like 
here's someone with a disability and and the joke is they've got a disability. Mm. So it's it's a slightly difficult watch, I think, this ending. Yeah. I mean, the joke is that she has a disability that in the by the standards of the program renders her unsuitable. But the whole episode has been how the standards of the program are shallow and superficial. Yes. And not to be, you know, something to be admired. So it's kind of, well, all your all your efforts have backfired because you've got to deal with a real person, not this sort of image that you wanted to put up. But I mean, realistically, even at the time, you you would have spoken to her before the live cross. Yeah. There's plenty of ways that you could work around that. You know, you can edit stuff out. You can just cut back to Mike Moore a few times. There would have been ways to salvage it quite easily in a really boring, pendetic media nerd way, sitting there going, oh, no, that wouldn't have played out. It would have been far less humorous. It's like, well, they went for the joke. And I guess, you know, they kind of, I felt like they did enough to make the joke on the people at Frontline rather than making fun of her disability. Mm. They, so. they, yeah, they got their come up. I, I think, I, I agree yeah. with you, but I just think that these days people would just go, how dare you make fun mm. of someone with a stammer, right? Oh, no, you, you, you know. wouldn't do it yeah. like that now. Yeah. There's no way. You, 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 you especially would not do what uh, Rob was doing, which was, and, and this, is, this is what makes the punchline for me, him, him trying oh, to yeah. Pro- spit out the bird himself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I could not mm. remember yeah. the how the episode went completely, but I remembered that there's a punchline right at the end. Oh, Desert Angel, I remember there's a punchline right at the end and then it, you know, bang, it finishes. And I'm like, oh, it must have something to do with her appearance. And in my mind, I'm like, yep, she's lost her two front teeth. <laughs> so <laughs> I wrote myself another joke for Frontline <laughs> in my imagination. <laughs> that might have worked a bit better nowadays. And therefore, as a consequence, she probably yeah. sort of whistled with every word she, she spoke. When, they, when she got the $50,000, she just went. <laughs> she whistled. <laughs> she breathed and she whistled out. I'm leaving well, that one alone. She, she's been in the desert for five weeks. She could have looked like anything when they cut to her. It could have just been, you know, sandblasted or whatever. Like a Monty Which, typing know. character, yeah. Yeah. Just before we get to an interesting postscript uh, to this episode, our special guests were Pat Cash and Neil Mitchell as themselves, Gerard Kennedy as uh, Station General Manager Ian Farmer, Jeff Payne as the Mike Moore impersonator, and uh, Natasha Weber as the Desert Angel herself, Jessica Steckel. After this episode aired... We heard from one of the unseen characters in this episode. There's evidence of this in the script book, but this was also uncovered by Shelley Dempsey in her antennae gossip column in the Sydney Morning Herald Guide. Everyone knows that Harry Morris Miller is a man not to be trifled with, especially when it comes to chocolate bars and or checkbook journalism. That's why a legal-looking letter headed Harry and Miller and Co. management from Waterloo caused a flutter of the hands and heart at the offices of Frontline, the ABC's new current affairs satire when it was received last week. After all, Harry and Miller had played a major part in the, in the last episode without actually appearing or having an actor appear for him. Seems that Harry M turned off his mobile phone long enough to settle back with, if not a chocolate bar, then a packet of Tim Tams last Monday to watch the show and found to his shock that it was largely about him. His reaction? Well, outrageous and scandalous are two words he used in his ensuing letter to Frontline. 
To that in a minute, but first the story so far. In last week's episode of Frontline, a fictional woman thought to have been lost in the desert turns up alive, and Harry M signs her up for a fee and trades her story between Frontline and a current affair. This, of course, is a variation on the real-life Iceman story, where Harry M made history by not allowing the brand of chocolate bar which kept James Scott on ice for weeks in the Himalayas to be divulged on 60 Minutes. Antenna is pleased to reprint a copy of Harry M's letter addressed to the executive producer of the show. Dear Michael Hirsch, It has come to my notice that your production included me personally and my company's activities in the most outrageous and scandalous manner last Monday night. The number of gratuitous mentions were extremely high, and having subsequently viewed the tape, one is drawn to two inevitable conclusions. Firstly, whether it is a satire or not, the ABC is absolutely in breach of its advertising code and taxpayers should not be burdened with what was, in fact, a blatant and free continuous mention of a commercial enterprise. Secondly, one would have thought this production team would have had sufficient artistic integrity, assuming their dedication to this illegal uh, advertising, to have ensured that certainly our company's office phone number and probably our fax number were supered on the screen to coincide with each mention of my name. We are distressed and disappointed. On a more serious note, I thought the episode was really clever, funny, and I can't remember having so many people from all walks of life, including a cockney carpenter who is doing some odd repairs at my home, comment to me about the show. You are all to be congratulated. It is a fantastic satire with the terrifying edge of realism hovering above at all times. May your ratings soar to the sky. Regards, Harry M. Miller. P.S. You may also mention to the news chief at Frontline that we in fact have a news story coming up, which we would offer exclusively to Frontline for a figure which would be equivalent to no more than 11 of the Prime Minister's anti-clocks. <laughs> That letter went hot and cold, didn't it's it? Like, screw well, you, it was, screw it was, you, it was, congratulations. It was taking the piss as much as they were taking the piss out of him, really. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, isn't that interesting? It is. And hey. it was a fax. These are the, the, the days when you could send, you know, uh, complimentary and or angry faxes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just mention that I noticed on the back of the script book that they've quoted Ross Warnicke as saying disappointing, <laughs> yes, and I they think, have. I think that came from your review that you read out, Daniel. So <laughs> it all loops oh, back. There were there were many, many, many words, and yes, disappointing would have been one of them. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, that concludes Frontline Season One, Episode Two, and the Champagne Comedy Podcast, Episode Forty Two. Wow, forty two episodes! Hooray for us! So feel free to give us feedback or. Whatever, just reach out if we, if you've learned something from this podcast. Uh, Champagne Late Show at gmail.com is our email. Uh, Twitter at TLS Champagne. The website, champagnecomedy.com. Forum's dead, so don't bother signing up to that anymore. Facebook, the Late Show page as well. Uh, as If you look up Champagne Comedy Podcast on Facebook, you'll find the group and join. And you can bond and you know rub shoulders with everyone else who's also a big frontline late show champagne comedy nerd anyway i just want to say a big thank you as always to allison daniel kim prue and tony thank you for coming on and also you the audience you specifically <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> yes, you're the only you. listener that's right yeah.
We had three a minute ago. <laughs> well, two, two of them have got bored. They're, they're, they're probably off listening to Alan Jones. Anyway, so yeah, that's it for the Champagne Comedy Podcast. I'm Matt. Thanks for listening. Catch you in the next episode. Bye. 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 Good night. Good night. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Champagne Comedy Podcast, created by fans for the fans. For more information on this podcast, please visit champagnecomedy.com. Produced by Matt Fulton Productions. mattfulton.com.au <laughs> well, okay, we know, oh we know, we know that rumor. We, we all know that rumor. <laughs>